don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... So, hello. Welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode three. Uh, Today we're talking about Christopher Nolan's 2014 extravaganza, Mm -hmm. uh, Interstellar. Um, We're coming off the last episode, which was First Reformed, where it was a very long episode. We talked for damn near two hours Mm -hmm. about it. Still didn't cover everything we wanted to say, but now we're shifting from that, which is a kind of smaller art house indie film, to this major Hollywood blockbuster. An extravaganza. An event. <laughs> In uh, space. Yep. Um, so, you you were saying that you saw on IMDb that it was ranked in the top, was it yeah. 20 films of all time? So, in, in 2015, uh, it was number 29 on this list they have of the 250 top rated films of all time. In uh, just in the past year, I haven't checked it recently, but I don't know, six or seven months ago, it was number 15 on the list of 250 top rated films of all time. And I, I'm pretty sure that rated refers to the the patrons of imdb.com. So it's more a gauge of like general popularity as opposed to like critical value or anything like that. But that's sort of what we're talking about, I think, is what I was saying earlier is that people, in my, in my experience, people love this movie. A lot of people I know really like this movie. Yeah, which is... It makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's Matthew McConaughey. People tend to like him, and this was kind of at the the height of his powers, right? I don't I don't remember exactly when Dallas Buyers Club came out, but it was around this time. It was right, right after this. He had a streak. McConaughey had a streak of like True Detective, Interstellar, um, Dallas Buyers Club. Was there one more? Oh, he did. Uh, he did the that Lincoln movie. Lawyer. <laughs> he did. He did one that was pretty good called Mud. Oh well, yeah, Jeff Nichols. Jeff Nichols, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, we we should probably at some point do Take Shelter by Jeff Nichols. I I am definitely on board with that. I've seen it one time, but I think about it like once a month. I think about that. Movie. <laughs> um, so yeah, he was he was you know hitting a lot of home runs, coming off of his weird kind of uh, romantic comedy. Yeah, there was man there was phase. a lull where he was like, I mean, he does like a cameo in. Uh, Tropic Thunder, you know, it's almost like a, it's like, ha, 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 uh, or it's like the same way Tom Cruise was like, you got the feeling Ben Stiller was like doing Tom Cruise a favor because his reputation was so terrible in 2009 that he, that he put him in Tropic Thunder. You also have McConaughey. The naked bongos thing. Right, right, right. Um, so yeah. And then what, I guess, what was the first one he did? What brought him out of? Obscure, not obscurity, but triviality. It might have been. It might have been True Detective. I can't remember what would have happened before that. Or was it Dallas Buyers Club? I can't remember. He's he's so skinny in True Detective, and I can't. It seems like maybe he lost the weight. He's kind of gaunt looking. Yeah, he lost the weight. I think for Dallas Buyers Club. I'm I'm not sure. Whatever it was, it doesn't really matter. No, not really. so, I mean, Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway, who everybody loves. Everybody loves Annie Hathaway. Do they? Uh, I mean, I do. I don't know about you. And um, I am everybody. And, you know, just 
Jessica Chastain, Matt Damon's in it for a hot minute, oh, John yeah. Lithgow, Casey Aff- Affleck, right, mm-hmm. controversial now, but uh, is in the film, Tim- a young Timothy Chalamet, who is, mm-hmm. he's still young, so, yeah, um, Michael Caine, of course, and Topher Grace. Eric Foreman. Need I say more? Um, fresh <laughs> off In Good Company. <laughs> All-star cast. I like In Good Company. I'm, I stand by. Maybe we should do that. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll do That's In next Good Company. Um, so, yeah, I guess we can just sort of hop right into the, the film since it's damn near three hours long. Um, yeah. And we, you were saying, we were both saying, rewatching it is kind of a slog to try to get through all of it. Yeah, it's like I, three different movies in one, and, and, and I, I guess I have an excuse because I've seen it many times because I wrote a paper on it, and so I was like, you know, invested in it for about three months of my life, and uh, it was really unnecessary for me to watch it again. Um, so, but I, I didn't want to like forget something crucial, so I, I did, but I fell asleep. <laughs> about three quarters of the way through. Now I was uh, uh, streaming it illegally because it's not available to stream anywhere for free anymore. Um, and I was just hitting the 15 second skip a lot. Mm. Anytime there was any sort of exposition, I was like, okay, yeah, okay, fine, sure. Uh, yeah. Um, so you're talking about this paper. And this paper is actually, unless I'm mistaken, this is where the name of the podcast is. It's the namesake, yeah. So if you wanted to say some more about that, we can just sort of start with that. Yeah, I'll read the basic thesis here if that can get us get us going. Um, so I start with uh, as I as I always do a quote from Curtis White, who says uh, many contemporary stories have a strong tendency to stabilize a world arranged according to the needs of techno capitalism. Christopher Nolan's science fiction film Interstellar is one such story. Uh, Our eco-critical reading will show Interstellar to be a sort of sampler of harmful ideologies embedded into a mainstream Hollywood narrative and will, I hope, demonstrate the necessity for pop culture scholars to be familiar with and vigilant about sociopolitical context in pop culture scholarship in regards especially to environmental issues. Uh, this is the sort of eco-critical approach is doubly important given the film's enormous popularity, which we just talked about. Uh, beyond the blogosphere and message board culture, whose focus on and enthusiasm for the film's special effects and Einsteinian science has placed Interstellar among the classics, is a film at work to convince its audience that our current industrial techno-capitalist society is not only right and good, but deserving of further investment and faith. Many ecological issues in Nolan's film have been ignored in lieu of detailed elucidation of the film's use of Einsteinian relativity science. While perhaps interesting, indeed consuming to a certain brand of geek, the science of the film is largely a tool of obfuscation. That is, the film uses the audience's fascination with undeniably cool scientific ideas, the relativity of time, among others, to mask the implications of the film's scientism. However, even some who pay attention to the environmental implications of the film's ideas dismiss them as incidental and point to the film as largely symbolic, as, at its core, a story about the human spirit, 
an attempt to reinvigorate national ingenuity and the ethic of exploration in a time frustratingly bogged down by the pesky implications of environmental science. Bogged down by, that is, reality. The avenues, though, through which Nolan chooses to conduct this supposed project of reinvigoration are revealing. These avenues are the rejection of stewardship through the villainization of agriculture and the earth itself, as well as the use of stereotypical images of female empowerment to obscure a patriarchal attitude towards women, an attitude linked to an imperialistic orientation to landscapes. So that should get us started. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, and just this idea of the enormous popularity of the film, because again, it's a, it was a kind of a summer blockbuster, um, versus its, its overall message, which is in, in many ways that we're going to talk about really lacking when it comes to ecological concerns. Um, but I will say this, and it's something that kept occurring to me as I was watching it, is that as a science fiction film and as a kind of cinematic event, it's outstanding, to at least in parts. I agree. Um, just watching the scenes where they're flying into the uh, wormhole or some of the more kind of action-oriented scenes, um, the visuals, like when they're looking at Gargantua, the giant black hole at the center mm -hmm. of the galaxy... Um, all that stuff is really fascinating and just great to look at. It's pleasurable to watch. If, if you can shut your sort of critical brain down, uh, it, it's, a, it's an extremely well-made, uh, technically proficient, like sort of visual masterpiece, even, yeah. uh, in a way. So. And, and even at the end, when um, he, he's reunited with Murph after being gone for all, the, all this time, uh, even though I know how corny it is and I'm aware of all these issues I still was kind of tearing up a little bit you get the tingles yeah yeah <laughs> like oh he he finally came back in that moment where she says uh he's like how'd you know I would come back and she says well my my father promised me and I was like Ugh. I just got the tingle you you saying that just gave me the gave me the tingles there and um, so that I mean from a, a strictly movie standpoint if you ignore all the other stuff it's great and, and what you see though when you when you turn the critical brain on is that that sentiment is uh kind of a tool to uh, because because you'll notice right before that moment uh, or, or as that moment's happening the the you know the father and daughter are reuniting he says the first thing he says to murph who he hasn't seen in a hundred years or whatever as a as a joke is you told them I like farming? <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, the high point, the emotional high point of the movie is a uh, is used uh, on some level to demonstrate the laughability of agriculture, you know, as a... Yeah. Anyway. Um, but your point's taken that on, on one level, this is a very enjoyable Hollywood you know, yeah. block if you saw it in, in IMAX, you'd be like, "Ooh!" And I, I saw it in I saw it in the theater, uh, and I don't think it was a summer blockbuster. I think it was like I think I remember seeing it like November winter blockbuster. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and this rejection of stewardship. Uh, I mean, we could throw a dart and hit something in this film that has to do with rejecting stewardship. Mm -hmm. um, you see specifically in my yeah how about here. how about when if if we have it let's play the clip but the 
where he basically says that he says it's like we've forgotten who we are he's talking Cooper is talking to Donald or Grandpa played by John Lithgow and he says it's like we've forgotten who we are Don uh, explorers pioneers not caretakers I hear your meeting at the school didn't go so well you heard it's like we've forgotten who we are Don Explorers, pioneers, not caretakers. Yeah. So he's he's defining and the we I think there is meant to be Americans, right? We have forgotten who we are. Or or maybe just humans. I, I don't know. Uh we have forgotten who we are. Explorers, pioneers, not caretakers. Um so he's defining us for us. Um and then of course the movie you know, kind of bolsters that that position through through the rest of the narrative in this idea of being explorers and pioneers and not caretakers not caretakers um is an issue for a number of reasons but it, it kind of it gets back to this i think you called it a imperialistic or uh, orientation exactly. to landscapes yeah, the, the imperialistic yeah. orientation to landscapes because it's an idea that the exploration and the pioneering and the settling and all that that's kind of the important stuff and then well what comes after that well more pioneering more exploring more and, and I of land and I noticed how <clears throat> how they it seems very intentional that there's a, a mention of the military is is no longer a thing in this world of interstellar yeah. uh, because that, that that's a good rhetorical move on their part because you cannot lobby for um you know, exploration of new territories and not have historical associations with military conquest, uh, and so and so the the writers try to expel the military from our minds by saying, "Oh, this has nothing to do with military expansion uh, or conquest because the military doesn't exist." But of course, in real life, it does. And right, yeah, and and. The way I kind of felt about the the whole, or a lot of the the world building in the film is that Interstellar does a lot of world building, but in my opinion, it does the wrong kind of world building in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So NASA being given this one shot is the entire reason that the film even exists, or the events of the film even mm-hmm. exist, uh, and it has to be done secretly because people would riot if they know that you're not trying to grow more corn and you're trying to go into space because what's the point of that? Because you've demonized science and technology so much because in many ways it is responsible for the the problems that they're in. Um, And it's only done secretly because they know that the planet is going to become uninhabitable and they want to continue the human race through the the plan B, which is all the, the frozen embryos being flown off to start a new colony. Um, so uh, the oxygen running out in the atmosphere is the, the necessary kind of holy shit scenario for this whole thing to have any kind of motivation. Um, otherwise, you can imagine it would be like now a lot of people saying, well, yeah, let's wait and see. Right. Uh, something you said reminded me of something Slava Zizek says about Christopher Nolan's movie The Dark Knight. Um uh, in Interstellar, it's like there's this small group of like privileged, uh, you know, scientifically enlightened people who are in charge of saving 
humanity. Like that is how progress happens. It's it's in a way kind of an anti-democratic idea. Oh yeah. You know, um, and I think Zizek says, um, well, he's he's talking about the Dark Knight and like the uh, sort of Patriot Act implications where, you know, Batman's like using these cell phone triangulation technology and basically spying on the entire city and of course he he expresses uh uh concern about the ethical uh issue but does it anyway uh, for for the greater good uh, yep, and, and he also talks about how the movie just thrives on the notion of uh lying to the public for the greater good yeah, like and then it, the, and yeah stuff. and then the movie then uh, in the documentary the pervert's guide to ideology it cuts to uh, Donald Rumsfeld saying, "We know, you know, about weapons of mass destruction." <laughs> like, yeah, um, but but you're you're right because it's not democratic at all. It's it's kind of it's at its very heart technocratic, right? It's this idea that we need people with this specialized knowledge. They have to be put in power because they're the ones with the skill to fix whatever our problem is, and we see it happening in our own world right now with Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and and these super rich people. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, I'm not a huge Elon Musk fan, but it's it's hard to watch a guy build his own space force and not be like, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, it's, right. oh, maybe it's, he can do something. Right, right. and it's not, it's not, uh, it's not about being against NASA or being against uh, space exploration. It's it's very cool, and it's it's interesting, and but I think the context in which it's done... Um, and, and this is an old, you know, kind of a cliche argument by now, but I think there's some truth to it of like, to, um, I think it's the comedian David Cross, uh, making fun of, making fun of Bush. He says, we can put a man on Mars and he's like, how would you put a man in a fucking apartment? Uh, <laughs> you know, to, to, to be concerned with these, you know, the, the future of humanity when, you know, whatever the statistics are on homelessness and poverty. Uh, it's like we haven't mastered this world yet. Let's, uh, one world at a time, I think. Yeah. Is. And what I had this minor epiphany watching the movie, and I call it the uh, Ouroboros of technocratic logic. Um, or uh, you can also call it the technocrat sucking his own dick. Yes. Uh, so... You have technology, specifically you have these individuals with this expertise in some sort of field, right? And that's the only way we can save humanity, is if they can somehow harness their knowledge and their ability to, you know, send us into space or whatever. Um, The problem with that is that it has to be profitable, or else why would they even do it in the first place, right? Uh, Therefore, saving humanity has to be profitable, otherwise why would anyone with the sufficient technology even bother to try to do it? Right, so it's this kind of great big circle, um, and you know that's why we're all fucked. Yeah, it's. I think the uh, there was a quote that's that says basically that that I used for the for part of the title. Um, shitty social, the shitty social vision, or whatever it was. Uh, and I can't remember what it was, and I'm going to mumble until I find it in this fucking paper. 
God damn it. Say something, Matt, while I find this. <clears throat> well, the, the, the quote that Cooper has that we've been kind of harping on, the explorers, pioneers, not caretakers, I was also as interested in what Donald says in reply to it. Because John Lithgow's character, Donald, is very interesting. I would have liked to hear more about him since he's lived through what it's implied are the food wars, mm-hmm. um, which I, I would be interested to see what that looked like since I think it's closer to our reality than what Cooper's doing. But Donald replies after he has this line about not being caretakers. says, when I was a kid, it felt like they made something new every day, some gadget or idea, like every day was Christmas. Six billion people. Just try to imagine that. And every last one of them trying to have it all. This world isn't so bad. And Tom will do fine. Tom, Cooper, son, is going to be a farmer. You're the one who doesn't belong. Born 40 years too late or 40 years too early. My daughter knew it, God bless her, and your kids know it, especially Murph. Yeah, so I guess we're supposed to think that he was young. He's like us, right? Yeah, it seems like Or, he, or maybe a little bit younger. Yeah, he was kind uh, of right on the edge of societal collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, when everyone still had the newest iPhone right. 37 or whatever it would be. Um, before crops started right. going and so extinct. Growing up in excess... He is not, uh, he's sort of put off by it and so doesn't mind the sort of austerity of. <laughs> yeah, it's of, almost uh, a weird, yeah. a weird sort of, kind of reminds me of Toller. It's kind of weird, like shutting himself off from stuff and saying, oh, it's not so bad. Like it's it's simpler, it's right. more wholesome, maybe. But, but, but the movie, I mean, utterly rejects Donald, oh, yeah. uh, Grandpa. I mean, he's, sure. his name is Grandpa, right? <laughs> Yeah, and the, it's it, and at every turn it's reaffirmed that no, this world is that bad. Yes, it will kill you. Yes, it wants you to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, Cooper even goes that far of saying, you know, this this world is a treasure, and it's been telling us to leave for a long time. Uh, which is, you know, of all the attitudes I've seen, kind of anthropomorphized in the Earth, that's a weird one. Of it wants you to get out of here. Right. It wants you to go look for the new planet. Yeah, it's like it's like a weird like the Earth has agency. You know, which sounds like a a good idea, sort of a gauche idea, but it's telling you to. Uh, first of all, it's not correcting you on on your treatment of it, but it just wants you to leave. Uh, yeah, it's like just go, man. It's it's in your nature to leave. It's uh, like uh, if someone makes a big enough ass of themselves at a party, you're just like, just leave, man. Um, <laughs> It's very, it kind of verges on the kind of Gaia hypothesis thing, which I always thought was just kind of hack bullshit. But, um, right there with the flat earth. And something else I noticed that I just wanted to bring up because I don't think it gets brought up enough with this movie um, is that apparently in the future there are no black people. That's kind of the... There's one, and he's the scientist. No, there's two. There's uh, uh, the principal. Oh, yes, yes. So there's... there's well, he played, Romilly. He played uh, Martin Luther King in Selma. I can't remember the actor's name. Oh, the guy who plays God. the principal. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Romilly, who's the, the scientist that goes... That gets left behind in the ship and ages. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a cool moment. Um so I just kind of couldn't help but notice that in the future there are no people of color and the implication kind of is in, in the best case scenario 
each race lives on on its own space station, <laughs> kind of segregated from the rest. Right, right. Um, yeah, the, the space station's like this like weird suburban gated community, mm-hmm. and like it's it's so weird how fine with it the movie seems to be. Oh yeah, it's just like this utterly artificial thing. It's like oh, it's the same thing. It's like a it's like a, a tourist version of the old way of life and it's uh, yeah it's like Epcot in space or something yes um and I just I think we should talk for just a second because I don't I don't really understand what the point of this is maybe it's Christopher Nolan not fully grasping American culture but what is his deal with baseball and baseball being this prominent thing that well it's baseball is America's pastime it is it is so integral to the sort of traditional concept of, you know, national character. And and so we see this diminished game, right? You know, we see it, uh, it's, it's utterly, I mean, it's just been reduced to this, like, less than a high school baseball game. And apparently these are the Yankees, yeah, right? Yeah, the world-famous New York right. Yankees. And, 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 so, and then, so this uh, American pastime that you see at the beginning... Uh, this diminished American pastime is interrupted. Even this small semblance of it is interrupted by this dust cloud. You know, the, the result yeah. of the the dying Earth. Uh, so yeah, I think I think baseball be- is a symbol for the national, you know, national well, pastime. At, at the end, world. when they're in the uh, the cylinder, I forget what the there's a, a term for that in science fiction speculative stuff. Yeah. But the uh, the cylinder, they're playing baseball when. Uh, Cooper comes to after they find him floating in space. Um, so it's weird kind of, we took baseball to space with us, but apparently not any of the other pastimes. Right, and they, did it, and they did it really uh, strangely because someone hits a home run and it like it goes breaks a up. window that's above the field. Yeah, like, which is kind of a cool effect, I guess. All, all of that stuff with the, the cylinder was kind of neat, I guess. But yeah. Yeah. Um, let's let's talk about. Uh, I think for me, the first time I saw this movie, what clued me in to sort of pay attention to how this movie treated the environment was the early scenes, and within the first fifteen minutes or so, where Cooper goes to the school yes. and is talking to Murph's principal, David Oyelowo, I believe is that guy's name. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and uh, teacher, what's her name? She's been in a handful of things. She was in an episode of The Office, is what I recognize her from. The the character's name is Miss Hanley. Mm-hmm. Um, Colette Wolf. Yeah, is is the actress's name. Um, so the first thing I noticed in this scene is. You know the discussion they're having uh, among uh, the principal, the teacher, and Cooper. They're talking about the federal textbook and the corrected version. They're upset because Murph brought one of Cooper's old textbooks, and it has something about the Apollo moon landing. And we learn that it's the sort of school board consensus that the moon landing was faked. Um, it was a. She says it was a brilliant piece of propaganda to bankrupt the Soviet Union. Yeah. 
And so we see, again, uh, this other sort of marker of American identity uh, being sort of shit on uh, the moon landing. And But what's so interesting is right after she says something like, you know, talks about that, and we, we're already like, oh, this is a ridiculous person. Uh, she says something very... Uh, very believable in to you know to my view um i've got it written down somewhere this will be the whole episode me looking for (laughs) searching frantically Uh, yeah so miss hanley solidifies her ridiculousness to cooper and thus the audience who is already unabashedly on cooper's side just by virtue of the character being played by McConaughey, when she explains i believe it was a brilliant piece of propaganda that the soviets bankrupted themselves pouring uh resources into rockets and other useless machines Mostly to himself, but with clear anger, Cooper repeats, useless machines. Miss Hanley finishes her sentence. And if we don't want a repeat of the excess and wastefulness of the 20th century, then we need to teach our kids about this planet, not tales of leaving it. Cooper then explains that the MRI machine was one such useless machine to come out of the space program, and that if MRI machines still existed, one might have saved his wife's life. And then Cooper leaves angry. That's kind of his his whole comeback to that. Right is he doesn't even consider her larger point, which is let's worry about the planet we're on. It's instead, you know, how dare you insult progress and technology? Right, right, right. and and he just sort of egregiously, you know, fa- uh, fails to consider the lives lost because of uh, the technology afforded by industry and he's got a fucking drone in the back of his <laughs> yes. car at that point you know in the back of his truck at that point in the movie because they like there's that weird opening scene where it's like they're hunting an animal but they're like intercepting this drone yeah and it's the whole scene is just sort of to be honest what watching it again and this is only the, the second time i've seen this movie i saw it originally in the theater um that whole scene's kind of weird and comical in a lot of ways He's, they're driving on a blown out tire so first off I was like I don't know about all that and they're, they're <laughs> just tearing ass through a cornfield mm-hmm. and he hacks into the drone with his laptop super quickly well it's it, it, watching last night I got the feeling it's meant to approximate like the the father taking his children out uh, on like a hunting teaching them to hunt um, you know they're like tracking this animal and like the computer functions as like the gun uh and so they and then he the they land the drone and he takes the uh the computer out of it oh yeah and it's like it's like he's removing the heart of the animal it's very strange he says something like i'm gonna give it something better to do or give it something more noble to do or something right and and murph says can't we just let it go (laughs) okay right just let it (laughs) It's, it's so strange. Scene, oh my god! Uh, okay, well, well, it's an Indian Air Force drone, like surveillance drone. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Well, you know, their air command went down the same time as ours about ten years ago." She's like, "Oh, it's been flying around for ten years of this kind of amazement." Right. Um, and he just wants it to strip the solar panels off of it, basically. Um, back to back to Miss Hanley though, and her, you know. Sh- uh, she expresses this idea of like an earth-centered philosophy, right? And because she's already said these ridiculous things, we just, we think that that idea is also ridiculous of like teaching our kids about this planet. That 
Yeah, that's that's the, that's the kind of thing the people who believe the moon landing was faked would believe. Yeah. Uh, and that quote I read from her about uh, the excess and wastefulness of the 20th century, uh, there's a quote from uh, the critics DeLowry and Hanley who wrote the introduction to the book Post-Colonial Ecologies. And, and the, the quote is this, Although rarely commented on by American eco-critics, the chronic endangerment posed by the United States to other countries derives from excessive consumption, pollution, and waste, as well as neo-colonial forms of globalization, militarism, and development. So, like, the, th- the ideas Miss Hanley is, is uh, you know, telling to Cooper, aside from the moon landing conspiracy theory, are the type of things that uh, eco-critics are talking about. And we are supposed to be on uh, Cooper's side, who, who just, you know, dismisses it outright as ridiculous. Yeah, and, and that's what, uh, another great quote that he has in the, the first part when he's still on Earth of, we used to look up at the sky and wonder at our place in the stars, now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, the, all this stuff, if he hates farming, thinks it's beneath him because he's this, you know, almost NASA pilot and mechanical engineer. And... It reminds me of the line in uh, To Elsie by William Carlos Williams about, it's something about it as if uh, the ground beneath our feet were were the excrement of some sky above or something like that. Uh, but yeah, Cooper's just like really uncomfortable with or disdainful of dirt and agriculture, and uh, it doesn't really make any sense. No, especially because their mission, ostensibly, is to fly to another galaxy in search of new dirt, exactly. <laughs> new new places to grow crops. But it's not about it's not about that. It's about the chase you know and that's that's a whole thing we can get into uh and i'd like to get into um at some point of of this i i did a lot of thinking about this idea this sort of trope in american fiction that dh lawrence talks about and his booty and his his booty (laughs) and his i was trying to say in his book studies uh in, in classic American literature. Booties in American literature. Right. Uh, in his chapter on uh, Walt Whitman, he sort of defines the uh, this, this trope in American literature. And he's talking about Whitman. He's talking about... Uh, I mean, you can apply this to so many things. Huckleberry Finn, Moby Dick, all these on the road. He says... Uh, the journey itself down the open road, exposed to full contact on two slow feet, meeting whatever whatever comes down the open road in company with those that drift in the same measure along the same way, towards no goal, always the open road. Uh, he's just talking about this tendency classic American literature has to just uh, ratify and, and, and endorse this constant movement right yeah. and uh it sort of ignores the kind of psycho the, the psychology behind it it just it you know there is there is uh it is good to move to continue moving uh, and 
and the, he calls it the open road. And so I think we see the in Interstellar of, of Cooper just like having to keep moving. Um, he is he is not interested in settling. He's interesting and in, interested in exploring. Uh, yeah. Not yeah. And, and at some points it's he's so sort of single minded in this pursuit of this exploration that it kind of, I think it speeds the plot along at an uncomfortable pace. So specifically I'm thinking about when he finds the secret NASA bunker and he's looking at the ship and, and uh, Professor Brand, Michael Caine's character, is trying to entice him to pilot the ship. Even though, as Cooper says, like you, you didn't know I was alive until 20 minutes ago or whatever. Now you want me to save the world. Um, yeah. And how he does it is he lures him in with his curiosity, his sort of, you know, uh, exploring spirit of, mm-hmm. well, you know, they send, he's like, well, who's they? And he's like, well, we have to fly the ship to find out. And it literally takes him about 45 seconds to convince Cooper to leave Earth and everyone he knows on it mm-hmm. for likely forever to go, you know, star trucking or whatever it is. Right, right. I, I really like that you brought up they. You know, that's a word that keeps getting repeated in the movie Who, who's they um, and I, I wrote down a few thoughts on on what they mean and I say uh, any humanist reading of Interstellar's repeated lines we are they which they say at the end you know yeah. we are they they find out there's no aliens it's or us right um, yeah suggesting I suppose that we must function as our own saviors that there is finally no one coming to our rescue but ourselves uh, is overshadowed by the narrative's clear conception of a patriarchal god we're going to get into religious territory here shout out to first reformed cooper is a father figure in the sky who communicates with his children through private and one-way transmissions Uh, these transmissions are clearly prayer-like and their melancholy tone suggests a lack of faith in uh, what amounts to their god, the, the the tone of like his children, right? They're kind of defeated, um, but of course Cooper succeeds in the end, and all doubts are proven to be mere moments of weakness, and we are left with a restored faith in the salvatory power of God the Father. This is related to the family dynamics. Interstellar suggests that a father's proper place is outside the home; that there is a calling higher than that of raising and providing for one's children or simply making a home. The political world outside the home, composed largely of corporations and institutions, uh, is the arena in which a man finds his proper place, fulfills his sense of duty. This is a conception that is, of course, wildly beneficial to corporations and institutions and decidedly detrimental to families. Um, so there's a lot, a lot there. But they... Um, I think the the emphasis on they is really about um, about the conclusion of we are they. No one is coming to rescue us, but it, like I said, the contradiction is that on another plane, uh, you know, on another level, this movie is uh, very much rooted in the sort of savior, uh, you know, sort of Christian like savior ideology of you know, pray to the man in the sky and, and things will work out. 
<laughs> yeah, and there there is a lot of interesting kind of faux spirituality, I guess, and it always kind of comes back around to it being spirituality about science, kind of. So uh, when Murph realizes that the ghost is her dad and the the Tesseract, you know, hitting the bookshelves or whatever, yeah. um, she says, "Well, you know, I kind of always knew." I called it. I didn't call it a ghost because I was afraid of it. I called it a ghost because it was, you know, strangely familiar to me or whatever. Mm -hmm. So even when they talk about sort of otherworldly things, it's always in a very science-minded way. Like at the beginning when Cooper says, you know, there's no such thing as ghosts. You have to do your experiment and find your evidence mm -hmm. and present your results and right. basically lays out the scientific method for her. Um, so it, that was just a really... And, and the fact that they're very, all the scientists are very interested in they, mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of the the impetus they have to go and, you know, they they opened up the wormhole for us. They wanted us to see this, and that big reveal at the end of they is us. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, you know, bootstrapping in time travel fiction. It's sort of bootstrapping the solution. We were always going to solve our own problem. Right. Right. And um, it's just. Another another quasi religious statement is when Doctor Brand Michael Caine says uh, when when Cooper goes to NASA at the beginning he says we're not meant to save the world we're meant to leave it and and, and so the big sort of epistemological question is like meant by whom <laughs> like. <laughs> You know, just like the word meant yeah. is very strange. Like, who means for it? Is there something outside of us that imposes that meaning? Uh, and, of course, that goes unaddressed, <laughs> you know. I, I saw a cool uh, Reddit theory, because um, I, I was kind of looking at different interpretations of the ending, because anytime you have some loopy time travel stuff like this, you can get into a lot of, you know, dizzying detail about stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and one person had made this claim that uh, Cooper at one point says humanity was born here, it was never meant to die here, that kind of thing. And their whole point was that there had been some humans that had made it to another galaxy and had evolved to be five-dimensional beings, and life on Earth died because they were gone, so they go back in time and try to prevent it from happening. Mm -hmm. um, which, in my opinion, is a way more interesting story than, than looking at it from, from uh, Coop's side of it. But, yeah, I've never thought of it that way. Yeah, and it's, you know, regardless of what you think the ending means is not really important for the fact that the movie has a shitty social vision. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, Casey Affleck, uh, the, the elder Tom, uh, and the, like the sort of middle section of the movie where Jessica Chastain as Murph, you know, is trying, and uh, Topher Grace's character, who I believe is called Getty, yeah. um, are trying to sort of rescue Tom's family. This, yeah. I think, is the best example of what we were talking about earlier, of this, like, sort of elite, you know, the, the, the elite condescending to the people uh, to save them from their ridiculous outdated ways of thinking it's weird because the movie doesn't really seem like it knows where it wants to go 
because we keep getting repeated scenes of Tom standing watching his crops burn mm-hmm. and just looking kind of despondent. And so we're meant to kind of empathize with that, but at the same time, as soon as he goes in the house, he's sort of painted as this almost abusive father figure. Yeah, stubborn to the point of, of stupid. Yeah, like letting his son be sick instead of right. seeking treatment because... He doesn't trust science, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's not really it's made it's explicit. Like, and then it becomes about you know saving the children. Uh, it's like uh, child abuse to leave this kid there. Um, yeah, it's it's just the disdain that the the disdain that Chastain <laughs> that Murph has for. Uh, yeah, she says, "What are you going to do? Wait until another one of your kids dies?" And that's when yeah. he like. Freaks out, and I was watching it last night, and I, I remember thinking to myself, "I'm on his side, <laughs> like 100. percent That's a terrible thing to say to someone." Uh, there's a, a scholar, Larry Lohman, I think, who calls this uh, uh, relationship that we're picking up on here of uh, a sort of enlightened scientific community to the rural people. Uh, he calls it green orientalism. Uh, which he defines as the post-war narrative of development that sets up and enforces in fine Orientalist style a dichotomy between hungry, expectant, tradition-shackled Southern peoples and a modern, scientific, democratic North under whose progressive leadership they will gradually be freed for better things. Like that is exactly what's happening in those scenes, you know. Yes. Um, and it's weird that it's what kind of ultimately resolves that kind of going back to your point about um, Cooper and being this sort of godlike figure, what ultimately resolves that conflict is him contacting her through the watch. Mm-hmm. And that's when she, she runs out and she like hugs her brother. Like Topher Grace is about to fight him with a tire iron. Right. And she runs out of the house and it kind of diffuses the whole situation. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the last we hear of that conflict that they were having. Yeah, that that is a. <laughs> I think that's where I fell asleep uh, last night. Yeah, but that is a weird moment. Um, lot to lot to unpack there. But uh, back to this idea of, you know, the movie kind of shitting on uh, rural people. Uh, our our boy Rob Nixon, in uh, in his slow violence, he says, uh, when it comes to narratives of resource development whether of water, oil and gas, minerals, or forests, the people recast as surplus are most often rural. And he goes on to say this leads to rural people's, quote, imaginative expulsion from narratives of national development. And so you see, you just look at who dies in the movie. Tom dies. Um, Donald dies. Um, and, And who survives? Murph and Cooper and Cooper doesn't age you know yeah. um, so I, I definitely think that uh, the movie fits into that as well it, it imaginatively expels from this uh, uh, apparently better world at the end uh, the people who were of the you know the backwoods mindset yeah. of, of, of agriculture being a necessity. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it, it is in keeping with what Nixon is talking about. And I think that's the section when he's talking about um, sort of mega dam projects. 
So he's talking about things like the, the TVA in the United States and things like the Three Gorges Dam in China where they relocated these populations of these rural people that were seen as surplus, right? And you're standing in the way of national progress, so, you know, we need the land, please leave, right? And then, you know, flooding, or at least in the case of China, flooding World Heritage Sites to create this mega project that has, has done a lot to provide electricity and sort of pull China up from being, um, you know, a quote-unquote third world country, right, to being this powerhouse. Um, but it, those people do get lost in the shuffle, like... Tom does in the movie and, and these other characters and something that's related to that that I noticed that I I don't know if I read it like this the first time I saw it but it's really obvious to me now is this kind of fetishization of those kind of rural poor people especially when you think of the use of Ken Burns's clips from the Dust Bowl documentary right, right. that's that that's what the movie opens on mm-hmm. um, and then later on when Cooper is in the uh, the you know the cylinder they have created a sort of historical site that's a recreation of their home. Um, And it's, you know, everything is recreated, everything's as he left it, um, except it has these screens, these sort of TV screens that are playing these people talking about the Dust Bowl as if it was when he was on Earth, Mm -hmm. which that that comparison is made sort of a lot, even Mm -hmm. though it's, I think it kind of falls flat on its ass because... You know, Cooper still has his laptop and all of his technology and, and all this stuff. Right. Um, but that was just a really interesting part of the, the film to me is just how it's it's swept away and it's seen as being kind of it's uh, what's a good way of putting it? It's sort of excess, sort of excess people that need to be shuffled along so that progress can take place. But at the same time, once that's done that whatever that hegemonic power was will turn around and fetishize that and say, don't forget where we came from. Yeah, they'll that give them a thing. monument or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, building a monument to coal miners or whatever, right? Or Native Americans or, yeah. you know, whatever. Or anyone is. who's been Obliterated uh, sufficiently shit on. By, by the march of progress, yeah. In quotes, for sure. In quotes. In quotes. In um, quotes. We, that's that might be a good place to transition. I think one of the uh, uh, interviews that is used from the you know from the Dust Bowl documentary, someone says, "You didn't expect this Earth that was, you know, nourishing you to turn on you like this." Um, <laughs> yeah. And and the reason that's not a, like you said, I don't think it's a, it kind of falls flat is because there's a huge difference between. Uh, an event like the Dust Bowl and what you know the movie you know the movie is rooted in climate change because and we know that through the discussion of like crop disease and blight which is you know becoming more it is a result of climate change Um, and so there's not I don't think that's a fair comparison uh, you know to use the the Dust Bowl as as a one-to-one comparison with uh climate change because it obscures as this whole movie does it obscures the role that humans play in climate change it's like it's like nature is aggressively we talked about this in the first episode nature is aggressively attacking us and they never once mention like why the earth is 
you know, attacking us. They don't, they don't acknowledge uh, humanity's role in causing climate change. Um, the movie really can't without getting into really weird territory and like, you know, self-defeating, hypocritical territory. Yeah, and I think a part of that is that they're living in a world that has already kind of come through the other side of that has come through all the bad times that we're hearing will occur of climate refugees and conflict and now they're kind of at a at a standstill it's kind of a worldwide stalemate of mm-hmm. like you were saying earlier militaries don't exist anymore no one's fighting anymore everyone's just kind of oh, sounds trying to terrible. scramble to survive sounds terrible <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh man so boring i would want to leave too um you can't go see the real Yankees play. Life is terrible. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't really want to see the Yankees play now. Um, I fucking hate the Yankees. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm more of an underdog guy. That's why I root for the Cincinnati Reds and the Earth. You're not allowed to wear that hat in public, though, anymore, are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but yeah, this idea of this um, the Earth fighting back is this kind of... The, what, I've heard called the immunitary paradigm, which is another um, anthropomorphic idea of us looking at the earth and saying, well, clearly it's fighting back. Like, clearly, clearly it's trying to protect itself, but really that's not the case, right? Um, yeah, uh, this, this uh, scholar, Christy Tidwell, uh, sort of defines this sort of trope. She says... Uh, in films that villainize nature, the conflict is, quote, framed as an invasion by a nature that is exterior to humanity, uh, and that therefore this antagonism is predicated upon a relationship between humanity and nature that does not allow for their interconnectedness. And, uh, end quote. And that kind of uh, gets to my point about obscuring our role in it. If we distance uh, in climate change, if we distance ourselves from nature uh, then we don't see that sort of mutual uh, dependence and and interplay between you know what we call the environment even having that word that phrase the environment is in a way kind of a a tool to distance ourselves from it to create a a schism between us and uh, yeah if we have that radical kind of distinction we're not thinking about how we impact it on a you know in every way um, and so and so it has to be some sort of aggressive villain attacking us rather than us you know causing things so we, it, it, really we're attacking ourselves we're just too stupid to stop <laughs> yeah and so that's where we get to the overall message of the film in a way which is this is this world's fucked. Let's find the next one, um, and that's that's where it it leaves us, right? We have Anne Hathaway on the new Earth, and right. it says our new home. Right. Uh, like when it says <laughs> the big word, American flag, when it says the word home, it's like the whole movie has kind of argued against the notion of home, right? It's like it rejects that idea. What we should be doing is exploring. We're pioneers. You know, we should be out roaming the galaxies or whatever and and then it tries to use this sentimental notion of home how are it's completely illogical 
It's like we've watched, it, we spent three hours watching someone burn their house down, and at the end they're moving into a new one. You're like, <laughs> exactly. I'm going to get it right this time. Right, right. And, and, and the, the kind of paradigm that caused the necessity of finding a new home is never challenged to where we know uh, that they are going to treat this new home in the exact same way that they treated the old home, and in however many hundreds of years or whatever, they're going to need a new home. Yeah, and that's uh, McConaughey at one point when they're talking about, I can't remember, it's when they're talking about love and how love is can be transmitted across space-time or whatever <laughs> yes. bullshit that is. Um, and I think McConaughey, I think Cooper's talking about hate or something, and he says, oh, so that's what we take with us. Huh. You remember this? He's talking to Brand. I remember the, you know, love transcends space and time. I think it's just taken about, as a, oh, of course, yeah. He's talking about, like, some negative attribute or maybe all negative attributes of, of human beings, and he's like, oh, that's what we take with us. And uh, this kind of interesting idea of no matter where we go, we're going to take that same attitude of mm-hmm. lack of stewardship and the constant need to push the next frontier mm-hmm. and not willing to sort of settle down and do the work of maintenance right. of the world as opposed to progress or right. but we're But don't you know, Matt, we're not caretakers. <laughs> no, no. We, we're we, we're we've pioneers, already, yeah. of course. Here's, let me I've always you. said we're pioneers. <laughs> you do. You're very insistent yeah, about that. Uh, three let times me, a day. Let me hit you with some Wendell Berry. Uh, at present, our society is almost entirely nomadic. And it is moving about on the face of this continent with a mindless destructiveness, without a complex knowledge of one's place, and without the faithfulness to one's place on which such knowledge depends, it is inevitable that the place will be used carelessly and eventually destroyed. Wendell Berry always just says it way better than I can even think it. It it makes me think of things that we all know are true in our heart of hearts, which is that People are migrating more than ever. More people, it, it, just think of only in the United States, people are flocking to cities, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, living in Middle Tennessee, what, I forget what the statistic is, but you know, some ridiculous number of people move to Nashville every day, right? And just to think of what that looks like and what how congested and just sort of mindless a lot of the building and the development is in a lot of those areas if we have we need it now we have to do it so let's throw up a condo complex or whatever right and you can you can apply this sort of what barry calls nomadic way of life to kind of domestic things like you know people migrating to urban areas and that sort of thing or you can apply it to like military conquests right um uh, it's Naomi Klein, and we mentioned the book, This Changes Everything, either last week or the week before. I can't remember when we talked about it. Maybe. Yeah. Forget. Uh, she says, uh, the colonial mind nurtures the belief that there is always somewhere else to go to and exploit once the current site of extraction has been exhausted. Uh, again, perfectly. It reminds me of the, uh, the aliens from Independence Day. If you remember, you're going to have to uh, refresh from memory <laughs> on that it's, one. So, you know, in Independence Day, the, the whole the whole kind of thrust of the the enemy, the the aliens that Will Smith punches, that kind of thing. Welcome to uh, Earth. Welcome to Earth. <laughs> and I always, I always thought he said, like, I always wish he would have said motherfucker at the end of that. Right, right, right. Uh, anyway. It was PG-13. Well, yeah. But still. I remember, I remember laughing. Fox, like, with her ass 
pan out <laughs> on the screen, so why not have that? My uh, favorite line from Independence Day, wait for it, is, uh, oh no, you did not just shoot that green shit at me. <laughs> yeah. Classic I think when I was shit. 10, that was the funniest thing oh, I yeah. ever said. But, you know, the, the whole thing about the aliens in that movie is that they're harvesters, and that's what they do, is they go from world to world, and they use up all the resources, and destroy it and then they move on to the next one so they're kind of parasitic in that way and in a lot of ways it's kind of what interstellar is saying about humanity mm-hmm. is that we go from we've used up this earth and extracted all we could of it and ruined it so let's go find a new you know, one i'm gonna have to watch independence day again yeah maybe we Be, should do that sometime honestly because isn't it wasn't it made by roland emmerich who made the oh, day yeah. after tomorrow and i wonder oh, yeah. how conscious that commentary is you know yeah, I don't know, maybe. I know that's the whole, um, you know, the doctor. or you know, it's when uh, Bill Pullman, when the president, you know, has the visions of what the aliens think. He's like, oh, they're, they're parasites. They're here to take all of our jewels or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, well, well, we can do a twofer. Let's do Day After Tomorrow Independence slash Day. Independence Day. Yeah. Six-hour episode. <laughs> oh, we're going to have a lot to say about uh, Independence, Independence Day for sure. Um, what were we talking about? I forget. We were talking about military, military the, the nomadic way of life. You, yeah. you can apply it to domestic, you know, things or kind of military conquest. Um, this belief that there's always somewhere else to go yeah. and exploit. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and that's that's generally how we feel. Just kind of on to the next one, right? Yeah. Um, Let's talk about, so when I, I pitched this paper to Dr. Laura White uh, in her class, Post-Colonial Eco-Criticism, the, uh, she approved that I read a paper about this movie, and the first thing she noticed was how there are no mothers in this movie. <laughs> You know That's what I'm saying, and and the women follow uh, in their father's footsteps, career-wise, right? So, you know, Cooper, or I'm sorry, uh, Murph becomes the scientist. Uh, uh, Doctor Brand, uh, Anne Hathaway, follows uh, in Michael Caine's footsteps. All, uh, and 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 neither one of them has. There's no mother figure. It's almost like the the mother figure has been imaginatively expelled in Nixon's yeah, phrase. Like a Disney movie or something. They, they die before the narrative even begins. Right, uh-huh. but it's but it's this rejection of like that. The same way the movie, you know, they say uh, we're we're pioneers, not caretakers. It's saying we're men, not women. <laughs> you know, we're men, damn it. We wear right. buckskins. <laughs> yes. Sell up the Missouri River. Um, yeah, and, and like, we hunt so, drones. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so uh, I mean, even with uh, Doctor the the younger brand, so Anne Hathaway, mm-hmm. um, and then Murph, who are, I guess, the only two other than the teacher, the only two female characters we really encounter. Um, there might be one yeah. more in that like secret cabal of Na- NASA scientists that we see. Uh, but they do both follow in their father's footsteps, and it's kind of this weird idea that, uh, at least in how the film is written, that equity for this, these women is just being the same 
kind of douchey technocrats as all the men, right? Doing the same kinds of things, um, just doing them really well, right? Uh, so Murph ends up being the the hero of all humanity, right? But mm-hmm. I don't think it does much to sort of cancel out what you're talking about of having a lack of any sort of kind of feminine influence on anything. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I'll just, I don't know if this is like super boring when I read from this and it sounds artificial Who but cares? I've uh, I spent I spent time condensing my thoughts so I'm just I'm, I'm just gonna read it <laughs> uh, consider Murph's collapse at the absence of her father uh, when contrasted with her brother's stoic acceptance it suggests a controlled male autonomy and a chaotic female dependence in conversation with Cooper about his impending departure Donald uh, solidifies this starkly stereotypical characterization by blatantly saying, Tom will be all right, but you've got to make things right with Murph. I think uh, I was talking earlier about the Honest trailer on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, I th- they make a similar point. They say something like, uh, uh, basically, Cooper doesn't give two shits about Tom. And he's like, clearly, Murph is the is the favorite and they like play this montage of Cooper screaming Murph like he screams Murph the whole movie apparently Uh, consider also Dr. Brand's plight ostensibly she is an autonomous and independent woman she is an astronaut with a PhD these markers of empowerment however only obscure the more essential aspects of the character the subplot surrounding Dr. Brand is that she is trying to reunite with her boyfriend a goal which causes her to make irrational decisions often through tears also, the film only makes the subtlest hints towards a romance between Cooper and Brand, not to suggest Brand's independence and a sense of self-worth apart from her sexuality, but to somehow soften the implication of Brand's responsibility at the end of the film to populate a planet. Murph and Dr. Brand, despite being a doctor and an astronaut, respectively, and despite the authoritative white coat and the categorically unsexy spacesuit respectively, are depicted in Interstellar as women are often depicted in movies as driven solely by and dependent on men. Interstellar's depiction of women is insidious in its attempt to embed and obscure this dependence with the accoutrement of sophisticated scientific careers. I've always wanted to use the word accoutrement in a a paper. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in another version of this paper, or like another draft, you you we're talking about fuckability. I, I replaced in that last paragraph. I said, uh, apart from uh, a sense of self worth, apart from her sexuality, I edited myself, and it the original said, uh, uh, apart from her fuckability. Yeah, well, I think that's that's an important concept to think about because I mean it's still you know major Hollywood production, right? Um, so I think there is in the mind of a lot of producers something to be gained by having the um you know fuckable female scientist who's Mm -hmm. competent but also on a mission and also beautiful and Mm -hmm. kind of that um idea of of having all of those things encapsulated in one female character Mm -hmm. so you don't have to worry about having a lot of them in the film um so you have Anne Hathaway being emotional but also very competent and very um, you know, capable, and you have Murph being very super emotional, but also she saves humanity through math <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. 
Well, I told you. I told you before we started recording. I wanted to take this to a weird place. Uh, I guess it's time since we're talking about <laughs> sex. Glitter rip. Uh, it, it surprises me. There, there's so much. I don't know maybe if I'm just like perverted, but there's so much sexual imagery in this film, um, and my initial impulse is to say that it's unconscious you know and, and or or maybe not even there and i'm a pervert uh but there's I, i've heard so many interviews where christopher nolan says what a big fan of kubrick he is and kubrick is just like the man when it comes to uh technology as dicks you know the opening, the and you can quote me on that. The opening of uh, Doctor Strangelove is just like a joke of these, you know, military planes. Pardon the pun, docking. Uh, I mean, think about how much docking there is in Interstellar. Yeah, um, it's it's the best docking film I've ever seen. Um, and, and I've seen, and I've seen I've them seen all. Much here. <laughs> We were, you were talking about the this kind of germination metaphor of you have all of these scientists in their little white suits with their big helmets being shot off into space to to fertilize the exactly. alien it's, world. It's like it's like the the uh, spacecraft is the dick. The explosion is the is the uh, or the the uh, paint me a picture with the, words. The take up. <laughs> The takeoff is the ejaculation, and then the astronauts are the sperm fighting for life, you know. Um, And I said, like I said, I was watching it last night, and I said it as like a kind of joke. Um, Well, yeah, and then the planets are eggs. Right, right. I said it as a kind of joke, and it just sort of stuck with me, and I couldn't stop reading that into it. And that coupled with all the other, you know, all the other sexual imagery there's a spe- there's one that's just at the very end when cooper uh he like he and the robot tars steal this spacecraft from this uh cylinder thing that they're on and there's a shot as cooper gets in the spacecraft the doors into the star-filled unknown slide slowly open with all the unsubtle suggestiveness of a Cialis commercial. And then it cuts to Dr. Brand, forlorn, on the, <laughs> on the, on the uninhabited oh, planet. And no joke, at, like, as it opens, and then it cuts to her, like her, her mouth sort of opens, and it's like she's in this moment of rapture. Um, it's, it's very strange. Like, it doesn't make any sense for that to be consciously there. Like, yeah, um, I don't know. But there's uh, all that to say. There is a lot of uh, there's a lot of dick in Interstellar. Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> so that makes all the um, the failed planets where the uh, astronauts die. Those are just like the those are the Kleenex planets. <laughs> You're trying to find the it, one actual. Exa- exactly. I, I was uh, I was reading. In thinking about this, I was reading uh, or rereading some notes I made in Norman O'Brown's Love's Body, which if if you have not read Norman O'Brown, do it immediately. It's the weirdest, coolest, uh, especially Love's Body and Life Against Death. 
uh, I, I think he would call the uh, narrative structure of uh, of uh, Interstellar genital organization, <laughs> where this sort of like Freudian, you know, conception of the body uh, is the organizing principle for this narrative. Um, anyway, I find this film very genital. Yeah. <laughs> It's a very banal movie. Um, to take a hard left from all that, um, something I wanted to bring in and something we talked about a little bit is this uh, Kim Stanley Robinson article, and I won't I won't beat it to death, but there it has some something to say I think about Interstellar and the way we're reading it, and it it was in Commune magazine, which I would recommend because they have a really cool um, payment model. A kind of pay as you as you will sort of model for paying their uh, their content producers, and it's an article called Dystopias Now, uh, and Kim Stanley Robinson, a uh, well-known science fiction writer, does a lot of speculative, um, very cool uh, kind of speculative stuff. Studying under under Frederick Jameson at Duke University, um, so he's hip to all the the lingo. Yeah. So he doesn't need your money, but give it to all the other writers working right. there. He says late capitalism a lot. <laughs> yeah, he, he uses that a lot. Um, and the the subheading of the story was the end of the world is over and now the real work begins. Mm. And he talks about science fiction working on two levels. He says there's a speculative future that it's it's aiming at, and there's also the the shitty now that it's that's my term not his that he that it's trying to reflect. So it has this kind of dual character. And he talks about um, being anti anti. Dystopia or anti-anti-utopia, and it uses this complicated uh, Grimaud rectangle semantic square thing to talk about it. But the general idea of it is that to be anti-dystopia, we have to be anti-anti-utopia, so that utopia should be the goal, which is, can be kind of controversial to say. But he says it's crucial to keep imagining that things could get better, and furthermore, to imagine how they might get better. Um, and then he says something I think is really important, or maybe we should just give up entirely on optimism and pessimism. We have to do this work no matter how we feel about it. Um, which is just such a, a great message. And he's, um, when he puts this in the form of talking about ideologies, he says we all have ideologies. They're a necessary part of cognition. We would be disabled without them. So the question becomes, which one? Which ideology should we pick? People choose even if they do not choose under conditions of their own making. Here, remembering that science, too, is an ideology, I, was, I would suggest that science is the strongest ideology for estimating what's physically possible to do or not do. Not that it's necessarily the one that is always correct, but it's the best for trying to figure out what the actual kind of limits are for what is, what is possible to, to accomplish um, from a, a kind of technical standpoint. And the, the very last paragraph is something I wanted to read real quick, so my turn to do a little bit of reading. He says, an adequate life provided for all living beings is something the planet can still do. It has sufficient resources and the sun provides enough energy. There is a sufficiency, in other words. Adequacy for all is not physically impossible. It won't be easy to arrange, obviously, because it would be a total civilizational project involving technology, systems, and power dynamics. But it is possible. This description of the situation may not remain true for too many more years, but while it does, since we can create a sustainable civilization, we should. If dystopia helps to scare us into working harder on that project, which maybe it does, then fine, dystopia. But always in service to the main project, which is utopia. 
and just this kind of no-nonsense um, attitude that he takes somewhere else in it he's talking about this kind of attitude that people have toward things like the Green New Deal of oh it's, it'll be so difficult it'll be an entire societal shift how will you ever succeed and his response is yeah yeah whatever fine we have to do it like it has to get done um, and this idea of you know let's not squabble about how we got here anymore I mean be aware of it but let's instead try to imagine and try to work toward um, because it's important not just to imagine, but to also actually do the physical work of how do we improve upon the situation to, you know, the best of our ability to to the extent that we still can. Yeah, it's uh, going back to what what uh, Robinson says about uh, science. It's interesting that he acknowledges it as an ideology, and I think a crucial aspect of that has to be uh, our awareness of it as an ideology. And is it even an ideology if you're aware of it as such? You know what I'm saying? Uh, the problem with that is is kind of what we talked about on the first episode. I think I read from from Curtis White about Marx. You know, saying Marx sort of assumes that it is. Uh, you know, he assumed what he needed to prove that exploit exploiting a human being as a sort of tool for the aims of capital is wrong but why is it wrong and so insofar as uh, a scientific ideology rejects spirit and treats human beings as if they are rational beings i you know i can't get on board with that because because like i said science cannot tell us why the earth is worth saving it, it can tell us how um and it, or it can point us in the right directions, and I think that's probably his point. Yeah. But but to say that science as a worldview is the one we should pick, I think you have to have multiple. You know, and I think there's, insofar as you know, I I don't know how far he elaborate how much he elaborated on that. But if that scientific ideology does not encapsulate uh, some sort of element of transcendental meaning um, you know that's what people need we, we need to find a way to incorporate uh, the, the facts of science into some sort of ideology that can account for a sort of inner uh, spiritual with, with you know without getting into uh, a strictly religious sense of the word spiritual uh, spiritual account of our, of our experience experience on the planet uh because without that there's just no reason to to save the planet I, to me it sounds like he's just kind of assuming that human beings are you know act out of rationality and and self-interest which it's like every election ever disproves that <laughs> uh well i think um going back to this idea of how we sort of try to unite science and all, everything that it, it can be used to accomplish with this deeper kind of motivation of a why even do this, right? Other than, you know, like you're saying, science isn't going to tell you that trying to combat climate change is good, right? It, it might be able to tell you how you might go about doing it, which I think is a big part of his point. Um, but I think Interstellar as a film does it through a lot of these interesting kind of platitudes um, and just... Uh, 
things that kind of got on my nerves after a while. So you see a lot of American flags. A big part of it being because it's NASA, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the last gasp of NASA. But at the end, when you have Brand on that new planet, and there's just a giant American flag flying at her camp, and it's all in the spacesuits. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this sort of what we've already kind of talked about, this pioneering American spirit, right? As if that's the only thing that is strong enough that when paired with science can create enough sort of um, force to get anything accomplished. Um, Especially with lack of any sort of, um, I guess, sort of military backing, I guess, because a big part that drove, a big thing that drove the space race was just trying to outdo the Russians, right? Trying to have some sort of superiority in space, I guess. Right, right? it's it's almost like this maniacal competitiveness that that drove that. Yeah, and so race. it's in lieu of that, what are we left with? Well, in Interstellar, it's we're pioneers, we're explorers, right? The sort of idea that that's what humans do, full stop. <laughs> it's kind of where it, where it is. You know, I just read... Uh... Uh, in reading Wilderness in the American Mind, there's a reference to Frank Norris. Uh, he's got an essay called "The Frontier Gone at Last," and he talks. He, he's talking about this sort of American mindset of the pioneer, and kind of is a pretty good commentary on the mindset I think that Cooper sort of has, and it's this idea that. As soon as the West, you know, in, in, in Norris, as soon as the West is civilized, uh, we turn, he, he says basically we turn from war to trade. We'll find new frontiers. And, and then we found space, you know, and then we found the Internet. Um, and, and so we're just never going to stop. You know, we, we do not stop to question our orientation we just the only thing we question is you know what's next where to next um full stop yeah uh, where to next well since we're trying not to have you know 24 hour long episodes um where to next what what are we watching next time we haven't even really. We really haven't talked about. It. I know what's on our list is. Uh, mother, mm-hmm. you want to do mother? Uh, yeah, let's do that. Because I think I think in choosing that, what it's going to allow us to do is talk about um, some more stuff about reception and how these messages can be conveyed to an audience, right? Right. Um, because with mother, you have it delivered in a, I guess. I would even go so far as to call it somewhat obtuse sort of way that it's being delivered um, as opposed to First Reform, which is very kind of on the nose, um, and Interstellar, which is also very on the nose in a very different kind of way, different kind of message. Yeah, I think think that's a good point. So First Reform is sort of this uh, sampler of like what what I think we think is like good good uh, forms of representation in terms of climate change. Interstellar is a kind of sampler of harmful orientations and and mother may uh, complicate that a little bit because it's it's a film whose perspective I largely agree with um, or, or whose information if I can say that I, I, I agree with but the delivery 
is is very yeah. complicated and uh, so I think we'll we, like you said we'll get into issues of audience especially and Aronofsky in general is kind of a interesting case because he's been very vocal about issues dealing with climate change mm -hmm. and uh, he's very interested in Madagascar where he filmed Noah and an episode of Anthony Bourdain's uh, Parts Unknown at one point um, so he's very interested in those kinds of uh, important issues and they've come out a little bit in his past couple films so in Mother and in Noah mm -hmm. um, so we you know, can talk about how he's trying to present them because like you're saying it it's very it's kind of obscured to a fault somewhat and i, I know that we had the same experience of seeing uh seeing mother in the theaters together and seeing people just be just confused mm -hmm. but but angrily confused mm -hmm. as in what is happening what is the point of this Did, film some people walked out right yeah yeah and uh we had the great thing of the the women, the old lady behind us, thinking that it was just sort of a, a comedy about manners. hospitality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Manners. yeah. Um, oh, how how rude these uh, these guests are. Yeah. So, we'll cover all that. So yeah, mother will be the next episode. That mm -hmm. that totally works for me. Um, so, do you have any sort of final thoughts about Interstellar or anything we haven't covered yet? No, I think I think we got to most of it. I think overall it's a, uh, like we said at the beginning, it's a movie that if you can shut your brain off and just sort of watch it, it's uh, very enjoyable. It's cool. Some of the scientific ideas are, are just are just cool. Uh, relativity of time, the scene where the, uh, I just punched my head. Uh, the scene where the... Relativity. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The scene where the uh, where they go to the planet that's like got the water mountains the and, and then go back to the uh, uh, ship and the guy's aged like twenty years or whatever it is. When I saw that the first time, I was like, "Oh, that's cool." Well, the first space movie to really talk about relativity, mm -hmm. which I think is was really interesting, and it's got a lot of uh, credit from actual physicists mm -hmm. for doing those kinds of things, if not correctly more correctly than any other film up to that point had done. Um, so it, it deserves credit for that. But, you know, like a lot of other, uh, almost all other Christopher Nolan movies, as long as you don't think about it too much, great movie. Yeah, and he, and he sort of elevates the blockbuster, the Hollywood blockbuster. Like, yeah, it's like true. you have to pay attention to get it with yeah. Inception and uh, and Interstellar and, and the Batman movies. Well, that's what he thought he was doing with the Batman movies. And... You know, didn't didn't always come, especially in the last one, which is kind of a. Let's uh, let me end then with a quote from uh, Joseph Campbell. Speaking of right. going back to Kim Stanley Robinson's ideas of Joey Soup, let's stick with <laughs> sciences, <laughs> sciences ideology. Uh, you know, Joseph Campbell's a guy who a lot of what he uh, was writing about was finding new myths to sustain us and incorporating uh, the facts, you know, the modes of thinking into the myths and how old myths don't work for contemporary times. And he says, uh, what is unfortunate for us is that a lot of the people who write these stories, he's talking about movies, who write these stories do not have the sense of their responsibility. These stories are making and breaking lives. But the movies are made simply to make money. 
The kind of responsibility that goes into a priesthood with a ritual is not there. That is one of our problems today. Mm. Preach. Because again, profit, right? Why do it if you're not going to make money off of it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's it, I guess. Don't do you want to do you want to do the the Twitter thing? Oh yeah, God, yeah. Thanks. I even wrote it down. Uh, so follow, follow us on Twitter. That's at Anthropod Tweets. Um, be our eighth follower, I guess. Um, this will this episode as all the other episodes will be available on SoundCloud and iTunes. Haven't got it up on any of the other major services yet. And uh, that's everything. So next episode, uh, Darren Aronofsky's mother. Yep. Uh, don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. <laughs> An Abundant Life podcast. An Abundant Life podcast. <laughs> Bye.